0: Let's open up God's Word together to page 450 in those Black Pew Bibles. It's Psalm 68. It's 35 verses long. It's a doozy. There's a lot going on, and I've tried to figure out what's the best way to not only explain to you what's going on in this psalm, but also to synthesize and categorize what kind of song is this your handout on your bulletin gives a title I think it's accurate a song about the ascension I'm still good with that I think that that is accurate you will see very clearly that this is a song about the ascension but really it's a song about ascensions If I were to make a little edit to the title after this week of finalizing my prep, I would say it's a song about ascensions, or to say it in a a different sort of way. Since we're talking about songs and music, I don't know if you appreciate a good mashup song, where you take one song or another song and mash them up together where the, the melody and the lyrics blend. Not the same thing as a cover artist, but two separate songs mashed together. I can think of a worship song that I remember when I was a young man in school, school age, listening to Chris Tomlin mash up How Great Is Our God? That repeated well-known refrain, How Great Is Our God? Sing with me, How Great Is Our God? And then he mashed beautifully then sings my soul. I'll save you from my amazing singing abilities. But he blended beautifully, How Great is Our God, his well known modern chorus praise song with this very well known old hymn. Mashup, that's what I mean. Psalm 68 is a doozy because it is a mashup. It is a mashup of scripture, it is a mashup. Of ascension stories. So I think if you will go with me on the journey that this psalm has, prior to even reading it, I want to point out a few things in the psalm that prove the big idea that Psalm 68 is a mashup of three ascension marches up to. Earthly mountains. And these three ascension marches up these two earthly mountains foreshadow the one majestic ride into heaven. That's my big idea. But before I even read the text, because of my guess, its lack of familiarity. Because of its complexity. Man, I was listening to Jim Hamilton. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. He wrote an entire commentary. Preached through all the Psalms. And he admits, guys, there's parts of this Psalm I just don't know what's going on. And that just reminded me to have humility. But I do think that the clear story of these ascensions up these mountains is obvious. I want to point that out. And then let's read the text. Verse 1. Just look at these verses to see the flow. Verse 1, notice the quotation from what Etienne just read for us, God shall arise. So this is from Numbers chapter 10, and it is about when the ark is about to move. That's how we begin, verse 1. The ark is about to move, God is about to move, and arise, and then the enemies will scatter. That's verse 1. Verse 4, skip down to verse 4. Notice again the movement of God here, and it being Described as a ride through the desert. So we go from the ark picking up off the ground and riding through the desert in verse four, verse seven. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. I hope you're starting to see that there's a clear theme of God on the move, God is marching. And so, we get clarity about which of these marches is being referred to. Verse 8, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai. So, now we've got this reference to Sinai. We've already been thinking about the ark if we caught verses 1, hearkening back to Numbers 10. So, So, we should have one mountain in mind, Mount Sinai. God taking his people through the wilderness up to Mount Sinai, and the earth literally quakes, read Exodus 19 and 20 again. That's when the Ten Commandments came down. So that's one ascension up one mountain that our psalm has already referenced. Now, look at verses 15 to 17, and you'll see the second mountain, and therefore, I believe, a second ascension. O mountain of God, mountains, mountain of Bashan, O oh, many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O oh, many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. And who's the psalmist? What's the very first superscription say? Of David. So we have a reference now to a mountain that God chose that's smaller than the northern mountains of Bashan. Mighty-peaked, huge mountains. This is like saying, we're going to move the mayor of Chicago out of Chicago and make headquarters in Elgin. Would that be strange to any of you Chicagoans? You'd think, why Elgin? It's a small little town outside of Chicago. That's the kind of concepts you need to make apply to this passage. They're thinking there's a lot of better mountains out there. Why did God choose the mountain in Jerusalem? And then you'll see very clearly in verse 24 and 29 that there's this procession into the sanctuary. So look at verse 24. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, into the sanctuary. And then you see very explicitly the mention of Jerusalem in verse 29. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall pay gifts to you. So far, two ascension stories of God moving with the ark up the mountain of Sinai and then through the wilderness up to the mountain of Jerusalem that we call Mount Sinai and then establishing his temple. So two ascensions, two mountains. But the big idea said there were three ascensions. And that's where we need to drop down to verse 33. And when you notice... The kingdoms of the earth sing praise to the Lord because he rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, and behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascension number three. Riding not just up a mountain, but all of these other mountain rides, ascension stories, foreshadow the one And final, climactic, majestic ascension of the Lord into the heavens. That I think would be your narrative plot lines of Psalm 68. With that in mind, let's read it now from beginning to end. All 35 verses. And as we do so, I want you to be paying attention to the the wonderful blessings that come to all of the people involved in this psalm. And in case you are prone to get distracted easily, I would like to conclude with three very practical applications. And they will be on the basis of what Ryan read for us earlier from Ephesians 4 and the usage of this psalm. And here's what I want to give you ahead of time, before we even read. Who is it that leads the procession? And that, I think, will have massive applications for how we think about everyday life in this local church. Two. What gift does he give? Three, why did he ascend? I think if we answer those three questions, we will see massive encouragement, hope, and very specific applications for doing life here in 2023. So let's read the text. Let's notice the blessings and answer these questions. Remember, the big idea of Psalm 68 is that Psalm 68 is a mashup of three ascension marches up two earthly mountains which foreshadow the one majestic ride into heaven. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. A smoke is driven away. So you shall drive them away as wax melts before fire. So the wicked shall perish before God, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among shepherds, sheepfolds. The wings of a dove are covered with silver and its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice, ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways the Lord said I will bring them back from Bashan I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood that their tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe your procession is seen O God the procession of my God my king into the sanctuary the singers in front the musicians last between them virgins playing tambourines bless God in the great congregation the Lord, O oh you who are Israel's fountain, there's Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulon, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O oh God, the power, O oh God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. We rebu- rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people's. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kings of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God, anyone? Amen for this Very deep, complex, rich word. If you're trying to just sort everything out, you have to remember we're in poetry. And not only that, we're not just using poetic language. We're mashing together stuff from all over the Old Testament. I think if we were to count the number of quotations and references to other Old Testament texts is probably a dozen in these 35 verses. If you would like to nerd out on the Bible's use of the Bible, Psalm 68 is an excellent place to go nerd out. Find all of the different references to the book of Judges and the Canaan conquest, to the references to what I've already mentioned at Mount Sinai, to Jerusalem and David ascending with his host of captives, defeating all of the enemies and establishing a temple in the Lord's presence on Jerusalem. The book of Daniel at the end and the ancient of days in the heavens and one who ascends up to the right hand of the Father. We could go on and on, but for the sake of time, I would like to just point out some of the rich benefits of this amazing psalm. We've already talked about how that it is narrating and mashing together these ascension stories up mountains. It starts with verse 1, but notice that the effect of God's movement is that his enemies will get washed out, melt like wax, and they cannot stop him when he moves. Verse 2, the wicked perish. Verse 3, the righteous are glad. Verse 4, people sing and praise him. Verse 5, this God as he moves, is not some crazy tornado out of control. No, no, he is controlled and protects the vulnerable, like the father to the fatherless, helping the widow, and leading the lonely to a settled home. The solitary settles in verse 6. The prisoners become prosperous. Verse 9. This phrase about the rain falling in abundance is actually because of one of those moments in the psalm that people aren't sure how to translate it because it says rain of offerings that were given as sacrificial offerings are falling down from the sky. That's how you would literally translate verse 9. Offerings like sacrificial offerings in the temple are falling down from the sky. How do you, how do you translate that? I think that the idea is to take it more literal but use it more metaphorical and it's that God is showering his people with great wealth and prosperity and then they are returning and giving it to the Lord as those gifts and the plunder from these victories through the movement of the Lord and defeating all of the enemies meant spoils. Did you see the reference to the women who at home in verse 12 are dividing the spoils? Because this is about a march, a military parade. We have won over the Egyptians. And did you know, in the book of Exodus, when they were set free, they weren't just free. They were rich. They were wealthy with gold. I mean, reread your Bible and consider how gracious God is to not just save his people, but to bless his people. But do you know what those people did in the book of Exodus? They didn't use the gold for their houses. They used it for God's house. They used it for the temple and the tabernacle. That's what I think is referring to. God showers them with gold and wealth and generosity. And what do they do with it? They turn it back up to God with offerings of worship to make a space for the presence of God's holy habitation. I think that's going on in our psalm. And I think that Paul is picking up on that when we get to Ephesians and answer our three application questions. Spoils from victory being then given up to the Lord. From heaven, dispensing it out to the rest of the earth. Verse 18 makes this explicit. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving the gifts. So when Moses goes up to the mountain, or when David heads up to Mount Sinai, all of those spoils and gifts, they then give over to the king. And they include, look at the way verse 18 says, even amongst the rebellious. He is so total in his defeat that the people he defeats, even like, all right, we hand it over to you. We bow down. You are worthy. We are not worthy. That's the idea of verse 18. When he ascends on high, when he takes his people up to the mountain, they're filled with just rich blessing, and then the blessing flows up to the top of the mountain, and they receive the king, Moses, and the king, David, receive gifts among men including even from the rebellious, so that the Lord will dwell there, which is how I think they turn those gifts into temple, tabernacle for the Lord to dwell in. Verses 21 and 23 has a very gruesome, poetic image of God crushing his enemies. I think it's a reference to Genesis chapter 315. Again, that's another one of these references from the Old Testament and the use of one another that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And there's this battle between the head crusher and the one who will bruise the heel of God's anointed servant. But if you read the poetic language, you might get your stomach all in knots. Like, wow, dogs are going to lick up the blood of the people that have been trampled? What is going on here? And I think the best explanation is actually that this is another form of another mashup not just of Old Testament stories, but from pagan Canaanite songs. This was stock imagery in Canaanite music liturgy as they worshiped the Baal gods. There's actually direct quotes that match this language here. So it's like a super nerdy mashup, if you're catching my gist. And therefore, I think that the poetic language is more of a way to essentially say, Take, like, the most well known Taylor Swift song. Like, she just killed it on her last album. Not that I loved it. I've actually not listened to any of the songs. But, like, it's done well, is what I'm saying. So, tons of people know it. Imagine somebody taking some very well known non Christian song, but then changing the words and making it about Jesus. That's kind of what's going on in this mashup of mashups. And I think that verse 21 to 23 explains that usage of this very gruesome language. Otherwise, how do you explain the fact that God says that the people who delight in war? Look at verse 30. I will scatter people who delight in war. He is not a God of violence and vengeance and bloodthirstiness. No, but he is a God who will defeat his enemies. And he is a God who will trample them and and crush them fully. And these poetic images have a certain kind of punch to them. So let them do their punching poetically. But realize that all of this is pointing to the non-violent death of Jesus on the cross who conquers by being conquered. Who crushed the serpent's head by having a crown of thorns on his head. That's how the Bible works. So don't read verses 21 to 23 and think, man, this is just reinforcing that idea that God is so angry in heaven and he's ready to come get us and he just wants to trounce on us with blood. And the dogs will drink the blood. Verse 28. Notice the way God's power works for his people. And the way that the kings bring their gifts in verse 29. Specifically, verse 31 says that the gifts even come from the nobles of Egypt. And at that point in my study, I had that like, ha, sit back. Are you kidding me? The nobles from Egypt Are going to pay homage to this Lord. Why would that be interesting? Because the first ascension story that we're talking about was being delivered out of Egypt because Egypt are the arch enemies, the worst ruler, the one whom you would think would be crushed. In fact these nobles will give gifts and give praise even from Egypt God will get praise. I thought that was fabulous. I hope some of you are tracking with me and also see how rich this psalm and poem is. The final few verses, 32 to 35, show that all kingdoms of the earth will praise this one Lord who has ascended on high, not just up a mountain, but into the heavens as he rides the heavens, which is a beautiful segue to question one. Who does he lead in this ascension march the answer is a lot of different ways you could sum them all up and say all peoples of the earth all kingdoms of the earth that's what verses 32 to 35 just said all kingdoms will give praise to this one but specifically notice the way verse 18 says he leads a host of captives captives, people who were enslaved. The kind of people that joined the parade, to use that metaphor, it's 2015, your Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Hooray, Cubs fans, you finally did it. And the result? Because we don't typically have a lot of war parades after a king goes out into battle and crosses a border and then comes back and takes the spoils and shows, look, we won in war. I mean, when was the last time in your lifetime that happened? For some of you that may be older, you could think of some of the certain wars and soldiers returning, but it never created the kind of like scene that at least I'm aware of, like downtown Chicago, when millions of people stormed Grant Park to celebrate the victory of a World Series. Who is in that parade? Cubs fans, who is in this parade? Who is joining in the song of celebration? Who's caught up in the moment of the pandemonium of this celebration, of this ascension, up into the mountain or into the heavens? well captives people who were doomed to die look at the way verse 19 and 20 says blessed be the lord who daily bears us up oh if you needed a little verse to put on your coffee cup put that one up blessed be the lord who daily supports and bears me up more than coffee i need you lord today He is the God of our salvation, the God of salvation, the Lord who belongs, deliverance from death. The one who ascended on high, the one who leads the captives, is saving them from death. He's rescuing them out of not just bondage from Egyptian pharaoh and slavery or the Philistine armies that David conquered, but ultimately and climactically the ascension of Jesus Christ who conquered death itself. That's the God that this Psalm points to, leading people who are enslaved to sin and doomed to die. Is that you? Are you in the parade, joining in on the song and in the praise, or are you standing by, scoffing, questioning, doubting? There's two kinds of people in Psalm 68. There are those who are caught up in the praise And those who are melted before the God who is on the move. And you do not want to stand in his way, arms crossed, thinking that you will be able to stand before him when he moves again in his return. So then I would encourage you to think about yourself and realize that this invitation is for all people. Did your dad leave you? Are you feeling fatherless? Was he absent even though he was in the home? He really wasn't around? Did he literally leave you? Are any of you adopted? Realize that God in his Word specifically points out vulnerable, weak people that think I'm rejected and says, no, you're included. This home is for you. Any of you feeling lonely? How bad did the 2020 pandemic expose the pain of loneliness? He provides a home for those who feel lonely. Verse 6, that's who is caught up in this parade. Notice that it is from the weakest to the strongest, from the nobles of Egypt to the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the poor. God provides in verse 10 for the needy. That's who he wants in this parade. Are you at all amazed at how good and gracious and kind the God of Psalm 68 is? The kind of victory that he hopes to achieve and has already achieved? He leads a procession of all kinds of people. So, I would encourage you, with your Bibles open, turn it to Ephesians 4. And see if maybe Paul is tracking when he is reading Psalm 68 and applies it to the unity and diversity of the local church. Is is that a, a random spot for him to quote Psalm 68? Or does it actually flow so naturally in light of the fact that he is leading a host of captives? Captives that include people who are enslaved, people who are weak, people who are fatherless, people who are widows, people who are enemies of God that now turn and praise that God. That's who's caught up in the train of this processional ascension. If you look at chapter 4 verse 1 Paul says I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Do this with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing one another with love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and then notice this call to unity. There's one body and one spirit just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. The entire setup for the quotation is unity amongst the diversity of the people that God has called. Notice Very carefully, brothers and sisters, members of embassy church, especially elders, pastors, aspiring church leaders, we do not create unity in the local church. We maintain unity because the Lord himself calls people to salvation as we preach the word of God. He saves people and then we welcome them into his church regardless of their skin color, how rich and wealthy they are, their family background, how smart and educated they are, Whatever their their limitations, pros, and cons, if they are a believer and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we say welcome. Maintain the unity that has already been created by the power of the gospel. But in the modern American church, you will get books that sell by the dozens that encourage you to pick a slice of the community. And target certain people so that your church will be successful. How sick does that make your stomach feel? Think about it as long as I have in my ministry. And the more I talk about it, the more it makes me sick. The church is missing the whole point of this call to unity in diversity. It's gospel-centered based on the proclamation of God's word. So that God draws the people into the procession of this heavenly throne room of worship. And you're here today if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. Not because we came and knocked on your door and we're looking for a certain profile. I believe every single one of you are here because you want to hear the gospel. So let's keep it that way. In fact, question two will further drive this point home. Who does he lead into the procession as they come up to the ascended throne? He's he's not just ascending himself. He's leading with him. People are coming with the ascended king. Second, he gives gifts. Now, look down at Ephesians 4. I wanted you to stay in Ephesians 4. Notice the quote from Paul. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That sounds just like verse 18. It is, like word for word. But then, Paul changes the words. Is he allowed to do that? I mean, yes. And he gave gifts to men. Now, if you go back and you read the old Hebrew text, even in your English Bible, you will see that when he ascended on high and led a host of captives, he received the gifts from men. Now you might think, this is why I'm not a Bible nerd. Why do we care at all about this subtle change from receiving to giving? I think it's twofold. One, I think that the psalm itself has already pointed to the fact that God... When he ascends his leader on high, they then turn the gifts back to be a blessing to the people in the building of the tabernacle, using the gold that they received from the spoils of their victory so that God's presence could be among them and then be a blessing to them. So in in one sense, the gifts are being given to God and the king is receiving them from the people, the offerings that pour down like rain, so that they can worship God. But then that then turns back to God. If you're not tracking, this is the point I'm trying to make. You can never give to God and it just ends with giving to God. God always is so generous, it comes back. But it comes back with something better than gold. It comes back with Himself. It comes back with His presence. It comes back with love. It comes back with a changed heart. It comes back with joy. It comes back with hope. So give your gifts. You could almost make Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4 like a good sermon on tithing. Seriously. Give the gifts that you have, time, money, whatever, to the Lord and know that you will get back blessings. And I'm not talking health, wealth, prosperity. A thousand times the amount of money you get is going to come in your bank account. I'm talking about the power of his presence to sustain you through death. So the gift He gives is himself through his word. Ephesians makes this very clear. Look at verse 11 and 12 of Ephesians 4. So he gave gifts to men, verse 11, if you drop down after the descent stuff. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, shepherds' teachers, so that they can equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What gift does he give? All right, he gives the gift of people who know how to give you God's word. What unites all of these offices? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherds, pastor teachers. The thing that unites all of those offices, positions is that these people have God's word. So I believe what's happening here is Paul is tracking with this idea. God saved his people out of Egypt and they were wealthy with gold but they used that gold to build God's house. David was wealthy with gold and his son Solomon used that gold to build God's house. Jesus Christ in the third and climactic ascension rose into the heavens. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit on human beings so that you can build God's house. I think it fits. I think that's exactly what Ephesians 4 is saying. There is unity amidst diversity because the gospel called you prisoners out of slavery and into the glorious church. So then remember that when he ascended into heaven and he gave the gift of people that have the Bible and can teach you it, receive those gifts and do so so you can build up the church i hope you're starting to see how paul's tracking with psalm 68 and he's not just proof texting a little verse and saying see it said ascent said ascension it said gifts oh yeah i was talking about gifts he understands the scriptures he's a gift to us paul is a gift it's one of my favorite little application points Realize how much a gift your pastor is to you. I'm God's gift to you. I say this on the authority of the Word of God. He gives the gift of Pastor Phil. And hopefully, in all sincerity and in humility, we receive this Word. Because the only way that I'm a gift to you is when I stay to the Word of God. So that this builds the church with the presence of God. How are you going to receive the very good gift of God's presence? God's word. And that's the logic of not just Psalm 68, but Ephesians 4's use of it. So, who is he wanting to join the parade? Everybody from every tribe, tongue, and language, but all kinds of people the vulnerable to the wealthy, the weak and the poor, to the smart and the rich. And he does this through his cross, as we've mentioned. He does this by coming and descending down from heaven to earth. God is on the move. Not just when the ark is moving through the wilderness, but when God is on the move in the person of Jesus. And Jesus Christ dies on a cross. And that's why I said there's three ascensions up two earthly mountains. Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven was by way of his ascent up that same mountain that David ascended. He had to go up Jerusalem. But instead of receiving the gifts, instead of being showered with praise and accolades, he was crucified and they shouted, kill him, kill him. Oh, the paradox of the way that God must flip the script. Instead of the showering of, oh, David killed his, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. Those hallelujahs on that first day of Palm Sunday quickly turned to scoffing and mocking and shouting and jeering and hating the Son of God incarnate Jesus Christ. Do you realize that it is because of the cross and Jesus Christ rode up the Mount of Calvary hanging on a cross as he bore it on his back until it broke him down to the ground and someone had to help carry it up. That is God on the move. It's the clearest picture of God in the move. It's the best ascension. It's what all the other ones were pointing to from the first place. So I ask as a third and final question, why did he leave us after he rose again from the dead? Why is he ascended into heaven? Isn't this the most obscure, weird sort of thing? Again, another strange move. Why? You would think that's the best part of the story. He just rose again from the dead. You now have a human that died and then came back to life. And he's not just any human. He is the son of God. I think I want him in the game and not off on the bench. And that's where our minds need to be helped by the idea that he must ascend in order that the church would fill all things. That's what Ephesians 4 says. Look down at verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens so that. That's why. So that. So that he would fill all things. And he would fill all things is a reference back to what he already said in Ephesians 1, which is filling the whole earth. Filling heaven and earth and under the earth. The glory of God filling all things through the church, which is why he transitions to verse 12, of the gifts of the men who preach the word for the sake of the building of the church to the ends of the earth. That's why. Jesus Christ in command center of heaven can make the spirit go here and there and everywhere. But if he was localized on one geographical place and the spirit didn't get poured out and he wasn't governing from that place, there would be no filling of the church all over the earth. So now, imagine this. Jesus Christ, the one who descended down to the earth, lived a perfect life, but died on the cross for our sins, was buried in the ground for three days and was really dead, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and remains there as Lord so that he can fill the whole earth with his presence that you and I are joining a parade of people that are literally across the globe right now. It was a small mustard seed of 120-some folks, small little gathering outside of Jerusalem, little group of people in an upper room praying, And now there are literally millions upon billions of people that are living on this earth across all of the corners of the earth praising the Lord from every kingdom and increasingly every tribe and tongue and language. That's why he left, for the sake of the mission of God and his glory over the face of the earth. He wants everyone. Who does he invite into the parade? Everyone. What gifts does he give? the word of God through people preaching the gospel. Why did he leave? So the spirit would empower that word and fill up the earth with the presence of the body of Jesus Christ. And we're not using gold to build tabernacles and temples. We're using God's word to build his church. So we speak the truth in love and build each other up and maintain unity, fight the racism and prejudice of our heart, and invite people into our homes with hospitality and love. We generously give of ourselves because we see the great generosity of our ascended King and Lord. That's Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4 thrown in. I hope you will receive the gift, maintain the unity, and disciple one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we do bow before the great throne of grace and ask for the the blessing of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us so that we can speak to one another in truth and with love. And that we pray that that would help us maintain the unity of the calling by which you have called so many of us out of the prison of our sinful darkness, the dungeons of our trying to save ourselves and releasing us into the freedom of your wonderful, glorious good news. Oh, Lord, we we thank you for the richness and the beauty of your word. And we want to pray that Embassy Church would be built up on that word and that we would reflect the truths of what we have just heard and seen in Psalm 68 and Paul's use in Ephesians 4. Specifically, Lord, as we meditate throughout the week, especially tomorrow, Lord, we want to pray that skin colors would never be a dividing mark in our church, that the way people look on the outside would be far less significant than the heart that they have for your word on the inside. May that be a true mark of embassy, a true mark of each of us individually but corporately. Give us wisdom at how we navigate those issues, especially as sin comes up and as people confess and as discipleship happens. Lord, we ask that it would happen, and that you would lead us to the truth and grow us in strength, and that we would not be tossed to and fro. The world is talking a whole bunch about racism and diversity and unity. Oh God, we pray that we would not just blow around with every wind and wave of doctrine and cunning and crafting teaching of the world, but we would be rooted in true gospel unity from your word, and that that would mark us out as different from everybody else. It's talking about critical race theory this, and School teachings that promote certain ways of living. And we pray, God, that Embassy will be strong and rooted and grounded in the truth of your word. So give us this gift today to receive your word by grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.